Well, good morning. It is great to have everyone here with us. For those of you in the chapel, isn't it great to not have reservations? It's great to come in. It's great to see everybody's smiling faces. Uh, those of you watching online, again, thanks so much. Uh, for those of you who don't need reservations to come to any of our services, um, we have full capacity available now instead of 25%. However, if you feel safer watching from home or watching out in the tent, we have some social distancing out there, you are welcome as well. So again, we have worked really, really hard the last 18 months to find ways to make everyone feel welcome, whatever has felt you, allowed you to feel the most comfortable as we've been trying to help all of us connect with God. And today we're beginning a brand new series. So if you're with us for the first time or you're just coming back after a long time, you've come on a perfect weekend. We're beginning a journey into looking at our, pursuing our wildest dreams. We're looking at a character from the Old Testament named Joseph who had a lot of dreams. And many of you have discovered that today some of your dreams have been fulfilled because bagels are back, right? Bagels are back out there. You might walk past it. Don't miss that. Coffee is back. It's, it's just dreams coming true here at Horizon. But as we look at uh, Joseph's life today, we're going to look at life with the metaphor of a mountain climb. How do we pursue the dreams we have for ourselves? How do we discover the dreams God has for us? And how do we climb the mountains before us to discover everything that would bring satisfaction and meaning and purpose into our lives? So listen, listen to this next song as all of us pursue our wildest dreams. Let's go. Well, good morning. If you're not woke up now, I don't know what's going to wake you up. We are back at church. We're singing about dreams, and we are ready to go in a new step, a new day. There is something about dreams, or maybe that song you remember from college or high school or whatever it is that you remember listening to during a workout or getting ready to run laps or whatever it is you did in sports. There's something motivating about dreams. In fact, as we hear the story of a dreamer today, his name is Joseph. And he's going to have a dream way back early, age 18 in his life, of where he might go. And like that final image in the video, isn't that what all of us do when we get to the top of a mountain? It's like, yes, did it, made it, got here, right? There's something so powerful about dreams. They motivate us. They inspire us. And yet... Sometimes they confuse us, right? I thought I was going this way, and five years went by, ten years went by, and now I'm going that way, and I don't know if I'm on the right path. Other times, dreams crush us, because I thought by this point in my career, I would have had a territory this big, and it's only this big, and I'm crushed under the weight of maybe I don't have what it takes, or maybe I'm not going to end up there in my marriage, and... We're headed toward kind of a bad place, not a good place. What does it look like to pursue the summit and to realize that on your journey to the summit, there's a lot of ups and downs. There's moments you fall off the side, you're dangling from a rope. There's moments that, that you've fallen down into a pit and somebody has to reach down there and, and, and pull you back up. It's like a, an up and down venture pursuing our dreams together. In fact, I had a buddy of mine I never met him before until about 25 years ago. I was speaking in Atlanta, Georgia on the story of the dreamer Joseph and how dreams motivate us and how God has dreams for us. After the message, he came up. He said, I want to meet you. So we went and had uh, lunch together, and he has become one of my best friends over the last 25 years, and that was the day. 
he said, man, I feel like God has a dream for me, but I don't know what it is. He said, I feel like I, I want to be a custom home builder. I'm building this business, but as with most startups, it's not going exactly where I want to go, but I'm not sure what to do, but can I tell you my story? And I said, sure. And he brought like a photo album with, like what is a strange way to meet somebody for the first time? He brings out like, like the old style gigantic photo album, like six on each page kind of thing. I'm like, all right. He says, I got married two years ago. No debt, big dreams, entrepreneur. My dad was an entrepreneur, you know, headed to the sky. And two weeks before I got married, I was switching jobs. And I went without health insurance for just 14 days. And a week before my wedding, and he opened up the photo album, I was in this car accident. And it was unbelievable that anyone came out of this car accident. And he just started showing pages of this car tumbled, top, topple, 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 topple in the middle of the cornfield. He said, if you look at my face, and I kind of looked up, two years ago I had to have this whole half of my face rebuilt. Because I had no health insurance, I, I went into my marriage with a hundred grand of debt just because of this car accident. He goes, you look at these pictures. I'm looking at these pictures. He goes, I shouldn't be alive today. I'm like, you got that right. He said, I feel like God must have a plan for my life and he must have a destiny for me. And during the years of our friendship, he thought he was pursuing being a successful, you know, multi-million dollar home developer in Buckhead, which he was for a while, but he got caught in the housing bubble that just got clobbered, him and many others, where overnight, all of a sudden, $10 million worth of assets were suddenly worth five, and they tried a fire sale to get rid of it, but couldn't sell it out quick enough and ended up in a pit, wondering what happened to the dream. But the whole time, he also felt like, Maybe he wanted to be a lawyer and that God may be calling him to serve other people in that way. And while he was trying to get out from this fire sale, he began to kind of go through the, the couple years of training and eventually passed the bar. And he became a lawyer and he felt the shame of going through bankruptcy and he became a bankruptcy lawyer. And he found that serving other people, he could help them with the same things he'd been through. And he now is an immigration lawyer and he begins to help people who have struggled with immigration. And, and he would say to you today, I had a dream I talked to Chad about 25 years ago. It's not where I ended up, but man, the summit I'm on is a summit God has for me, but what was quite a journey finding it. What we're going to discover in this series is that we, we rarely accomplish our dreams by elevating ourselves. It's me, it's all about me, but we always accomplish God's dream for us, the destiny and significance God has for us when we just look wherever we are and exalt people around us just exalt, how do we help other people, serve other people? And on that journey of exalting others, God exalts us. And Joseph is going to have a dream of where he thinks he's going to end up, and it's going to be like a long wait of a lot of bad, jagged edges getting there. But the whole time, he's got two secrets to pursuing his dreams. Two secrets he holds on to when things are at the top of the mountain and when things are at the bottom of the valley. And these two tools... I think it transform your life and mine as well. And here's the tools. No matter where he is, no matter what circumstance he finds himself in, he has a commitment to the relentless promotion of other people. How do I serve others where I am right now? In fact, as we go through the journey together, we're going to find he gets thrown into a pit. 
sold off into slavery. He ends up being sold to an Egyptian named Potiphar. He's now in slavery in Egypt, away from home, away from his family. And here's what it says while he's in slavery. The Lord was with Joseph in Egypt in slavery. And he was successful. God let him be successful in slavery. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, a very powerful man in the Egyptian empire. And his master saw the way he lived his life. It was like God was with him, and God made everything he did prosper in his hand. So he just kept promoting him, just kept elevating him, just kept raising this guy up because God was with him, and he served others. In fact, look at the last line here. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. I don't know about you, but if I'm sold into slavery in Egypt and I got my master, I'm like, I'm going to uh, stab him in the back. I'm going to find a way of escape. I got an escape plan I'm working on. I'm not serving him. Yet, Joseph, we're going to find this unbelievable commitment in every circumstance, in every situation. How can I serve God and serve others right where I am? And that secret God will use to exalt him and exalt him and exalt him in his time. And that's the second tool. It is a shocking reality that Joseph believes and Joseph holds on to unshakable optimism. When he's falsely accused of rape and is in prison for many years, (laughs) I think I'd be a little depressed. He has unshakable optimism in the pit when he's been sold into slavery and even when he's in prison. And here's that unshakable optimism. It's the belief that God knows what he's doing despite the circumstances and will eventually accomplish his plans. That is so front and center for Joseph, no matter where he is, no matter what's going on, no matter how bad things go, no matter how many jagged edges before him, he just constantly has this mantra, God knows what he's doing and he will accomplish his plans eventually. It keeps him from both cynical pessimism over here that will drive you into the ground with depression and this kind of syrupy optimism that's magical thinking. He doesn't know exactly how it's going to work out, but he knows that God will work it out. In fact, at the end of his life, he's going to reach the summit. He's literally going to be second in command to the entire Egyptian empire. And his brothers, who sold him into slavery, who left him for dead, are going to need him to provide food for them. And look at his attitude. Because you see both these factors here. The brothers that deserve, I don't know, thrown in jail to be imprisoned, tortured maybe for what they've done to him. And look what he says. What you meant evil for me when you threw me in that pit and sold me off to slavery 20 years ago. You meant it for evil. There's no doubt about it. This isn't like happy, uh, feel good, feel good optimism. You meant this for evil for me. But God, but God worked his plans together despite what you did, and God meant it for good. He accomplished his plans despite what happened to me. In order that I could serve other people, that I could be in a position to provide food to save everybody in this nation from a famine. And you see both things. God put me in a place to serve others. And God's plan was working. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it's such a powerful principle. It's been referenced in books like Good to Great and the Survivor's Club. And it's the the account of Admiral Stockdale. You know Admiral Stockdale? 
He's probably most famous for running as the running mate to Ross Perot. Remember Ross Perot? See, you're talking about difference. I'm talking about deficit. See, see, you're talking about difference. I'm talking about difference. This one's my running mate. His name is Admiral Stockdale. And Admiral Stockdale is pretty much known for one quote. Who am I and why am I here? So that's really all he's known for. But he is actually an unbelievably successful admiral who was imprisoned in Vietnam and survived for seven years in POW camp. And when asked, how did you do it? How does anyone survive seven years in the mountains of Vietnam? He said, well, the optimists die first. Well, that's kind of depressing. (laughs) He said, I'll tell you why. Optimists set arbitrary deadlines. I know for sure we'll be out by Christmas. I know for sure I'll be out by Thanksgiving. And that day comes and goes, and those arbitrary deadlines just set them up for (gasps) crashing down, (gasps) crashing down, and eventually they lose their spirit. I knew the the politics of Vietnam enough to know I was probably going to be here for five to seven years, and I prepared myself for that. The secret to surviving anything, he said, is not setting arbitrary deadlines of when something's going to happen, but knowing and committing to I'm going to win and persevere to the end. The people who persevere have an absolute confidence that at the end of the day, I'll win out. I will persevere. And that's what Joseph has, what the Bible offers that's so unique, is that you can know that for sure. In fact, the, the central point of the Bible is that Jesus is God, and he came and he got crucified on a cross. And this is like the end of time, like who wants to get crucified on a cross? And even the worst of the worst of the worst God turned around to bring forgiveness to mankind. And if God can do that through history, through Jesus, he can do it through you. And what Admiral Stockdale really found in the Stockdale paradox is how do you continue to trust you will eventually win at the end? You've got to access something greater than yourself. And that's what the Bible offers, this unique perspective. So let's begin. So these two aspects. The first one we'll look at is this relentless promotion of other people. Now, in order to really use this tool in your life, you're going to have to reject three myths. And it's the myths of doing the opposite. The the way you accomplish your dreams is by only pursuing yourself and kind of stepping on everybody else, pushing other people back. If you do that, then you'll make your dreams. But no, that's not how it works at all. It'll get you a certain distance, but it won't get you to the top of the summit. And Joseph's going to start off making a lot of mistakes. Before he serves everyone, he kind of is very self-promotional. His dad's name is Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, because his dad wrestled with God because his dad had a dream. He's got 12 sons. Joseph's one of them. And the 11 other sons hate their brother, hate him. We're going to find out why. One reason is because he's a tattletale. You know, sometimes we think that promoting ourselves comes from the first myth, that I can promote myself or accomplish my dreams by defaming other people. If I could put another people down, they're not going to get the promotion. Let's not let other people find out about their strengths, and maybe I'll get the job. Joseph is a young boy, 16, 18. He dwelt in the, in the land with his dad. He's 17 years old. He's feeding the flock with his brothers, all older brothers, and he brought back a bad report to dad. You know, my brothers aren't doing what's right. They're not feeding the sheep right. They're not stopping up water holes. And maybe if he could just defame all his brothers, maybe he'd end up being successful. Right? He's a younger brother. He doesn't have a lot of a clout. He doesn't have a lot of strength. But he can at least bring a bad report to them. Do you think this works out well with his 11 brothers? I know. But I think this idea that the way we promote ourselves is by, make, is by defaming other people, it's still rooted inside of us. 
that the people who succeed the most are those who train the most and release the most, and those who can actually apprentice other people and get the best out of the whole team, right? Isn't that who reaches the summit? Are you willing to commit yourself to relentlessly promoting others? Even if temporary, that means they succeed you. Might God use that to form the character to put you in a place eventually to serve the biggest, biggest audience? The second report is that, well, maybe accomplishing your dreams is about favoritism, not just fairness. And so Joseph's dad gives him a coat. And this coat is a coat of many colors, the technicolor dream coat, right? You put this on, you suddenly want to sing, go, 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 Jonah. This is the technicolor dream coat idea. And this was a coat that he made for his brother, that he made for his son, because he loved this son the best. Look what it says. So Israel, that's Jacob's new name, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. He made him a tunic of many colors. And when his brothers saw this, that their father loved him best, how do you think his brothers reacted? Oh, good. I hope he's in charge. Oh, good. It's so wonderful to see dad loving someone more than me. No, do you think this favoritism is going to set him up for success? No. And yet many times we think, if I, just, if I just had favor, even if it wasn't fair to other people, I'd eventually accomplish my dreams. And we're going to find that this favoritism does the opposite for him. In fact, his brothers, every time they see him coming, wearing that stupid coat, it says what? They hated him, and they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. Oh, just drove them crazy. Well, if accomplishing your dreams doesn't come from defaming other people, keeping them back, and it doesn't come from just favoritism, what's the third myth? Well, the third myth here is that rising stars have to tell people they're rising stars. <laughs> So Joseph, God gives Joseph a dream, and it's from God, and says, Joseph, hey, you're a little brother, you're being shunned by other people, people aren't seeing your value, I see your value, and I'm going to use you to accomplish amazing things. And he gives him two dreams, dreams that one day he's going to just really transform the world. But he doesn't tell him to tell his brothers, but he does. Imagine your youngest brother of 12 comes up to you and says, hey, I had a dream, and in the dream, you bowed down to me. Mm-hmm. One of us is going to be bowing down. It's not going to be me, right? So he makes a lot of mistakes early on, kind of rising stars, tell other people they're rising stars. Like, no, no, no. Secure people don't need to tell people they're secure, right? You don't need to tell people you're famous if you're famous. You don't need to tell people you're important if you're important. If you're operating from a place of security and a place of Of knowing who you are, you don't need to tell everybody how important you are. And yet that's often what happens is that because we don't promote other people, because we don't serve other people, it's because we're so focused on ourselves, our plan, our goal, our coat, our career path, what we were hoping to accomplish. And so we miss out on feedback around us. We miss out on things around us that we might be opportunities God wants to use in our life because we're so focused on ourselves. In fact, there's a book I read many, many years ago. It's called Why Great Leaders Never Take Yes for an Answer. And it tells the story of Rob Hall, who 
led many, many teams up Mount Everest. People would pay large sums of money to get Rob Hall. He had taken thousands of people up to Mount Everest. Just incredible journeys. However, he didn't create an environment where everyone could speak into the process to see how they could best serve the whole team. In fact, he began the conversation that day when the team came in, and he said, listen, this is not a democracy, it's a dictatorship, what I say goes. Probably didn't lead to a lot of discussion, right? Secondly, the team that was involved that day didn't know each other, so there wasn't enough trust to kind of challenge one another with different perspectives. There was a lot of pressure. The window had gotten very, very tight to get up to Mount Everest. Because of that, there's certain rules, time-tested rules been put in place that say, hey, if you don't get to such and such time by such and such date, uh, you need to abandon the trip. And if you're not here by this time, don't even try getting to the ascent. You will not make it back without freezing your lungs. Well, all the pressure was pushing in. Snow kept plowing in in a way that they couldn't really predict. But all these clients have spent all this money to get to, to Mount Everest they got to the point where they weren't at the right place at the right time, and Rob Hall said, no, I think we can do it. Many people did not think they could do it, but nobody had enough trust to speak into that. And because they didn't speak into it, they all said, well, Rob Hall's the expert, let's follow him up. So they followed him up, breaking the rules and the guidelines, not having any area which they could speak into the process of this is probably not good for all of us, it's probably not going to serve everyone well, and sure enough, there's a memorial on Mount Everest today for that whole team that died. All because a leader didn't create an environment where other people could speak into the process and say, I don't think this serves you best. I don't think this serves the team best. I don't think this serves everyone best. You see, when, when you really realize that God's in control of your life and you find your identity in God, you don't mind if people critique you or critique your ideas or push back on you because you are not your ideas. You believe in your ideas, you hope they're good, but when you feel critique or get criticized, you're open to that feedback because you're not defined by whether or not you're critiqued. You're not defined by whether or not people push back. It gives you this openness to say, hey, I want to serve everyone. This is everyone's idea of how we can serve the whole team here because there's some pretty painful consequences of making it all about you, making your team, your family, your marriage all about not a democracy, it's a dictatorship. It leads to the death, the pain that comes into our lives. So, how about for you? Have you created an environment in your family? Have you created an environment in your marriage, an environment in your company where people can speak in the process and do whatever it takes to better serve everyone? Because the other secret that really makes Joseph's life work is this idea that he knows that whatever happens, he's got this unshakable confidence that God knows what he is doing is going to accomplish it eventually. It starts over here before he gets thrown in the pit. He has these two dreams. The first dream, each of his brothers is like next to a big sheath of wheat that they've collected. And they bow down to him. He's pretty excited about having his older brothers bow down to him. And so all these different sheaths bow down to him. The binding sheaths in the field, behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. Indeed, your sheaths stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And they hated him even more. A stupid dream about the sheaths. Well, you'd think if he had any kind of clue, he would say, hey, this didn't go over real well. Well, God gives him another dream. And in this dream, the stars bow down to him and the moon bows down to him. At this point, I'd be like, keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. But 
Again, right now he's about promoting himself. He's kind of young and naive. He tells his brothers the second dream. Hey, not just you guys. The whole universe is going to bow down to me. How do you think that went over? Well, they hated him. He tells the brothers and sisters, Father, Dad's like, hey, shut up. Shh. Rebuked him. What is this dream you have dreamed? That your mother and I are going to bow down to you? His brothers now envy him. And his father's like, man, I don't think he should have said that publicly. But I'm going to keep this in mind. God might have big plans for my son Joseph. And he does. In fact, as we track through his life over the next few weeks, we're going to find it starts off with Papa's coat. It feels like, wow, I'm in control. Dad's given me favor. I'm going to make it. But next thing we know, he's going to come crashing down into a pit when his brothers throw him into a pit, sold off into slavery. Then, whoa, he's up at the top of the summit. He's at Potiphar's place. And though he was in slavery, he's now running the place. Man, he's climbing high. Until Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and he says no. She falsely accuses him of rape and he gets plummeted down, smacked up against the rocks, dangling from his rope in prison for almost a decade forgotten. And just when it looks like there's no way those dreams are going to happen, there's no way any of that's going to come true, God uses an unbelievable combination of everything that's happened in the past to make him second in command to the Egyptian pharaoh. But we'll have to wait a few weeks to see that. Except to hear this, look what he says at the end of his life, looking back on all the ups and all the downs and all the valleys and all the peaks, his brothers who sold him into slavery have come to Egypt needing the food that he's providing because they're starved back in their homeland. How would you act toward your brothers who sold you into slavery? Isn't it great to have power over people who once had power over you? <laughs> right? And how do you use your power over the people who had power over you? And this is unbelievable. Joseph turns to his rotten brothers who sold him, who wronged him, who robbed him of two decades of his life. And he says these words. I am Joseph, your brother. He's just revealed himself. Whom you sold into Egypt slavery. However, now, do not be grieved or angry with yourself. Really? Do not be angry or grieved with yourself because you sold me here. I'd be like, hmm, um, no, no, let's be very angry at yourself. Let's be, in fact, I've got a torture chamber here I'd like you to visit for about a month and we'll talk. That's what I'd be like. Joseph has this unbelievable idea of unshakable confidence that God used even the bad, horrible things in his life to put him in this position to serve the world. That he can have that kind of attitude. Look at how many times when he's speaking to them, he talks about God. He says, bad stuff happened, for God sent me before you. You think you sent me to prison? God sent me here to do a work. What? He wanted me to serve others, to preserve life. And these two years of famine has been in the land, but God and God, for God, but God, and God sent me here to preserve a prosperity for you and the earth, to provide for the Egyptians and you. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. I'm a mentor to the father of the, the modern world and a ruler throughout the land of Egypt. And look at those phrases, but God and God, for God. 
What if whatever happens in your life, whatever the future holds in the next six months or year, what if you knew for sure that you were anchored into something that could raise you up despite your circumstances? What if you knew that no matter what life threw your way, you were anchored into something that could always recalculate and get you to where you need to be? I might want some of that. I was reading about Mark Sinote. It's one of the top mountain climbers in the world. And they were interviewing him about the weirdest places he slept. And he said that many, many times he has slept one mile off the ground in a portal edge. Have you ever seen a portal edge? A portal edge is a cot that's anchored into a cliff that you sleep on a mile up in the air. He said, it's like sleeping in the craziest treehouse you've ever been in. He said, one time I was climbing all day. I got a mile up in the air, pounded my portal edge in, slept there that night, and it stinks because you smell real bad and you're cooking your food there, but it's like this incredible experience. I'm like, <laughs> he said, here's what's really dangerous. The whole thing's dangerous. No, what's really dangerous, he said, is when you're on a rock-faced cliff, the winds are like hurricane-level winds come and smack the mountain at the bottom, and they come straight up. And you're laying there in bed, and it actually lifts the whole thing up. And like a roller coaster, you're up in the air, and then it drops you again when the wind goes by. It's like sleeping on a bucking bronco, he said. And they're like, why would you do this? He says, because when you're anchored into the rock, you know you're secure. Life is going to give you ups and downs in your career, in your marriage, in your family. Are you anchored into something, an unshakable reality that whatever happens, God has a plan and he's going to accomplish it eventually? That's something to anchor into. You ever seen Devil's Tower? I went to Devil's Tower with my dad several times when we went to Sturgis a couple years ago. If you've ever seen Devil's Tower, it is shocking. It's like flat everywhere around it. And all of a sudden, there's this monstrous 60-story tall rock feature. In fact, if you were to compare it to, like, downtown Cincinnati, it would be the Tierra building, uh, but one and a half of them. That's how tall it is. And when you come up on, the, on Devil's Tower, as it's known, you can see what looks like maybe a third the size of an ant on the rock face. And suddenly you realize that's somebody mountain climbing up that thing. And you just realize how massive that thing is. And I remember standing there that day, like, shocked by it. One of the most famous peoples who've climbed Devil's Tower thousands of times is Frank Sanders. He climbed it for the first time when he was 15. He's still climbing it at age 65. 50 years he's been climbing that thing. He said, you know, in the early days, it was always about my goals to climb it, my goals to, to my bucket list I was on. You know, how do I raise myself up, raise myself up, become big name, be known as the guy who's been up it that many times. He said, you know, I got into my 50s and 60s, and I realized that's not what it's about at all. I'm finding the real joy of raising other people up, other people who've always wanted to do this. I serve them. I pound in. I help them take the step up. I'm serving them. I'm promoting them. I'm helping them accomplish their dreams. I've actually found the greatest source of significance and purpose in my life wasn't from raising myself up, but from raising other people up. Doesn't that ring true to you? 
The older you get, the more you find out these two tools Joseph has, relentless promotion of other people is how you find success. And, boy, if you could know that God was going to work through your circumstances, you could anchor into that, that'd be pretty powerful. And that's my encouragement to you. Life is filled with uncontrollable events. And if this last year has shown us anything, is that we're in control of a lot less than we think. But what if you begin to approach life, life through this lens? I'm going to serve big and play the long game with God. Wherever I am, how do I serve my spouse, serve my kids? How do I serve God? How do I serve my clients? How do I serve my patients? And whatever did not go the way I wanted and did not go the way I needed, for God's going to use this. Oh, I didn't want that pit I fell into. But God's going to turn this around. Oh, I didn't really like this. And God made it work out anyway. Serve big. And play the long game with God. We've been doing that as a church, right? How do we just keep serving? How do we just find ways to serve? We got tents, we got video equipment, we got chapel and mask. How do we just keep serving? Everybody had different opinions. Everybody sent me emails on every different spectrum of the masks all year long. How do we just keep serving? Keep loving and trusting God is going to work through these circumstances to grow people spiritually, to help people in their journey. And that's why we're here today. In fact, uh, this particular series we're in, uh, the children's ministry, if you haven't been in there yet, is all decorated like Egypt because they're going through the exact same journey. So you can talk to your kids or grandkids about this story for the next five weeks. Because we believe something powerful happens when we serve kids, when we serve students, we serve adults with our two-service design. In fact, I'd like you to hear the story of a friend of mine. My friend Mike um, started coming to our church at our exploring service, and, and I caught up with him a few weeks ago because I'd heard that God had been doing pretty amazing things in his heart during a very challenging time of COVID. And he shared how learning how to serve others and trust in God in the midst of chaos really transformed his life. It wasn't about him raising himself up anymore. It was trusting God to raise him up. Let's watch. By my very nature and profession in anesthesiology, we are kind of the, the uh, physicians in the background. Um, not a lot of light is shined on my profession. If we do our job well, you never know we were there. Um, to go from that to the forefront, um, and it's not something I anticipated in my career. And with COVID um, and all the people um, you see that were getting sick and dying, and they knew this was a respiratory uh, illness. In this event, it was people who could no longer breathe on their own uh, needed to have a breathing tube placed. So we were the ones called to do this. And you know, you're seeing these frontline physicians, you know, kind of, um, you know, contracting COVID and then you know ending up becoming very uh, sick and or dying. Um, this really began to hit home. So we were facing down the fact that one, I couldn't just call into work. You know, I had to show up. I have to take care of my family. I have to, my colleagues depend on me. My patients depend on me. And then as this progressed, and, you know, my son is making the transition from eighth grade where he knew lots of people into uh, ninth grade. And, you know, you're hearing about not going back to school or virtual school, or if you're going back to school, um, how are you supposed to make new friends, meet new people, feel part of this new school, especially, you know, in the formative years as a freshman. Um, so that was kind of one of the big stressors, obviously, uh, a lot of uh, trip cancellations. We didn't go anywhere, didn't do any uh, things, spent a lot of time at home, even isolating from our, you know, family and friends. We didn't know. Um, and I always felt 
kind of like I would be the one bringing home the virus that would um, ultimately, you know, um, make my family sick. So I tried to isolate myself as much as possible. Um, at the same time, kind of during prior to COVID, um, I was in the pathway uh, in the year-long process for um, promotion and advancement to associate professor of clinical anesthesiology. And this is a, a big feather in the cap in a career. Um, I had been uh, granted the promotion and start date, which usually comes with a raise as well, um, only to be told that that's not going to happen because, you know, there's a salary cut going on. So obviously in this past year I've learned I have um, very little control of my career, advancement, salary, whether my kid goes to school. There's really very little things that I actually have control over. So I thought to myself, when was the last time I felt like this? And that was probably in um, 2013 uh, when I went to Belize. I was taking care of this uh, young kid who needed his uh, cleft palate repaired, um, but he also had kind of a characteristic appearance which I couldn't quite place in terms of maybe there's some kind of underlying uh, syndrome. But as we uh, put him under anesthesia and um, attempted to place an IV, give him the anesthetic, um, we realized that all of his muscles became tight. We couldn't place a breathing tube because his jaw muscles were in spasm. It put the fear into me um, that this was uh, what we would rarely, if ever, see in the course of a career, something called malignant hyperthermia. And um, the ultimate um, endpoint uh, for malignant hyperthermia is death if untreated. So I uh, was staring down at a situation where this kid would most surely die. So there I took pause. I said, this is beyond my control. Please, God, help me. And over the course of the next 15 minutes, without treatment, we shut everything off. Um, gradually, um, his muscles uh, began to relax and he woke up. And I spent the next several years figuring out, why did this kid not die? And that's where my faith journey started. So, returning to the present, <clears throat> what I looked at was when I think that I am in control and what I am doing um, is what matters, I saw my anxieties increase. When I realized that I'm actually in control of very little, and when I give up control and realize that God's in control, that's when great things happen. I was talking to one of our greeters last week, and he said, Chad, I remember you saying that our DNA as a church is serving other people, and it really is. We want to serve you, and we want to create an environment that challenges you to serve people. And, and as we were finishing up this series, working on it a couple months ago, just a whole series of amazing things uh, continued. Morgan, for example, you may not know Morgan. He attends our church regularly. He comes to the early service, and he grew up Jewish and didn't really have a religious background, and he came to know Jesus for the first time about a, about a year ago. And we actually highlighted his video, actually, right as COVID began. He was one of the first videos that we showed when we were going into our video services. And he just was a professional opera singer and wants to give back to talk about what God has done in his life. Uh, Mike is down here in the front row with his family. You know, has been on his spiritual journey. 
And he will tell you that God promoted, challenged him to keep serving in some of those dangerous places during COVID and to face his fear in a pretty powerful way. We were originally going to do his, his interview July 4th for a variety of topic reasons. And as I was working on this message, I'm like, man, we got to, I'm not sure why, but we got to do Michael's story this day. And so we put it on the calendar. And it worked up. The Morgan story and Mike's story all came together. And John texted me two days ago and he said, well, you know, the Gilberto story isn't over yet. I said, yeah, and he got surgery a couple years ago on top of everything. He said, oh, no, Mike has continued to serve him and help him and work to navigate this whole thing, and, and he's actually going to be here in town soon. I said, oh, well, when's he going to be in town? Today. Gilberto, you want to stand up for us, buddy? Gilberto is here. Take, give him a warm horizon welcome. Man, it's so good to see you. Yeah, come on down. Hey, buddy, good to see you. So you're here to uh, do an MRI for the next couple of weeks for a surgery that they're going to do um, at Children's Hospital that's going to kind of prepare some of the last things that uh, they need to get right. So it's really neat to have you here. You want to say anything? I just wanted you to come up here so we could s- celebrate with you. Is that Mike right there? Has he been helping you? Yep. So just a neat story. Sometimes we plan stuff. Sometimes it happens real spontaneously. But the ways in which we're challenging people to serve other people, if if we put everybody's story up higher on stage, it's just amazing how our vision is to challenge people to change the world. And I hope God's going to call you to hopefully use Horizon to be part of that journey. But I hope you will be looking at the people around you, maybe go on a mission trip, maybe look for ways God's serving you that you can change change the world for somebody. Gilberto, thanks for being here. Can we give him one more cheer? Thank you, buddy. You guys have your mom. Thanks. So I don't know if this is one of those days you feel like you're on the top of the mountain or you feel like you're in the valley, but here's the confidence I want you to know. The same God who took, came to earth and was crucified on a cross, he found a way to make a way that 2,000 years later people be talking about the confidence that comes in rooting and pounding your life into him. Let me pray for us, and we'll see you all next week. Father, thank you for each person watching, each person that's been attending regularly online or here. Thank you for each person that's been giving financially during this time so we could continue to find ways to motivate and and encourage and affirm people's spiritual journey during this challenging year. Thank you for those who are serving behind the scenes, professionally at work or actually here greeting people or parking cars or preparing things for children. I just thank you for the way in which you're using our church to impact people's lives in such a powerful way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, for those watching online and those here today, we'll see you all next week. Thanks so much for being here. Enjoy a bagel and some coffee.